Textile Arts and co-curator of Contemporary Muslim Fashions. And thank you so much for joining us today for the exhibition's opening day festivities and programs. This is the first program today. We will have an instameet around lunchtime with Langston Hughes, a presentation by designer Deanne Palangi, and then at two o'clock, another fashion panel with Jill D'Alessandro, curator in charge of costume and textile arts with Her Highness uh, Dina Aljuhani Abdulazi and Gislin Guinez of the Modi. So please stay throughout the day and join us for the programs. I'm delighted to introduce you to the speakers for our first program, Faith and Fashion. It's led by Rena Lewis, Professor of Cultural Studies, London College of Fashion, University of the Arts London, and Consulting Curator for Contemporary Muslim Fashions. A prodigious author, her books include Muslim Fashion, Contemporary Style Cultures, Rethinking Orientalism, Women, Travel, and the Ottoman Harem, and Gendering Orientalism, Race, Femininity, and Representation. She's also the editor of Modest Fashion, Styling Bodies, Mediating Faith. A frequent commentator in the media, Professor Lewis has been convening faith and fashion as a public program at London College of Fashion and around the world since 2012, and she has taken it on the road today to San Francisco. I'd like to know we were to be joined today by Carmen Muhammad, but unfortunately she is not able to attend. We are delighted to have with us Yasmin Sobey, a designer and founder of the sportswear company Underwrapped, and they'll be discussing the global impact of modest fashion. Underwrap, so you know, challenges stereotypes, serving as a platform for religious and cultural values and influential Western fashion. The company blends unique style and fabric technology to enable women to dress for every occasion. Our speakers will be in conversation for about 30 minutes, and then we will have an opportunity for contributions and questions from the audience. Please give them a warm welcome to the museum. Thank you, Laura, and it is such a pleasure to be here today. I'm delighted to be hosting a faith and fashion discussion here in San Francisco as part of the public programming for the opening of our exhibition, Contemporary Muslim Fashions. And I want to take a moment to thank Jill D'Alessandro and Laura Camalengo for um, taking me under their wing and teaching me about curation. It's been a real privilege to be working on this. I am honored to have the opportunity to discuss modest fashion design with Yasmin Sabea here today, who I first met when you were completing your master's in fashion buying and merchandising at yes. London College of Fashion. And it's been a pleasure to see your company Underwrap go from strength to strength. There's been a lot of press attention for this exhibition, which is delightful. And quite a lot of it has been about how innovative it is to do an exhibition about Muslim fashion. And indeed, this is true. But our exhibition also breaks the mold in another way, in that we are showing all aspects of the fashion industry and of the ways that Muslims, and often Muslim women, as designers, creative entrepreneurs, stylists, fashion journalists and mediators, and consumers have contributed to that. So it is quite unusual to see in an exhibition everything from couture, custom made and bespoke, through um, affordable luxury to high street and streetwear, and also sportswear and athleisure. 
And as many of you will know, indeed, as many of you may well be wearing, athleisure has been an enormously popular segment of the fashion industry in the last seven years. And Yasmin has been riding that wave and indeed anticipated that wave. And so what's very interesting is that your work has come out of a proposition which wasn't initially about fashion design mm -hmm. in that Yasmin trained in fashion promotion quite broadly and worked in the industry before coming to do a master's in fashion marketing and buying. And I just want to say for a moment that this is very interesting because in the last 15, 20 years that I've been studying Muslim fashion and modest fashion cross space, many of the pioneering brands in the niche market for Muslim and modest fashion were women who couldn't find what they wanted in the stores or what they wanted for their teenage daughters. And many of those women therefore started their companies. But many of them had not trained in fashion or indeed in art. And partly that was because religious communities and also communities of migrant heritage haven't conventionally regarded art school as a desirable educational destination for their children. And I know at London College of Fashion, one of the things that's very important to us is to make sure that we're able to make the creative educational environment a welcoming place for people from religious cultures, as also thinking about diversity in terms of class and ethnicity. So you trained in fashion marketing and buying, mm -hmm. and then you started to think about why this was important. So why did you decide to start a company in this area? Well, to be honest with you, I think um, from my undergraduate project, which was back in 2012, doing fashion promotion and styling, I'd always um, combined my Egyptian roots and heritage with the kind of influential Western fashions because I'd been brought up in the UK but been really exposed to my Egyptian roots and obviously being Muslim myself. Um, and then I went on to explore visual merchandising and buying and then it's only when I was in buying that I realised to be a good buyer you have to be a good merchandiser and know the overall supply chain and therefore I then went to do the masters and the postgraduate at London College of Fashion and for the purpose of the course we was given um, a project to do a business plan regarding the growing trend of athleisure wear so um, not just having the sportswear for the gym or activity, but how we wear our leggings to the supermarket these days or to run the children to school. Um, so then I found a gap in the market for modest sportswear. Um, through my research, both primary and secondary research and competitive research, and obviously doing questionnaires in the middle of London where it's very diverse and multicultural, I realised that there was no trend-driven, modest athleisure wear. Everything was either quite imitated online or really high price. So there was nothing affordable, trend-driven and durable. And then another aspect of it is that, obviously coming from a buying background, knowing my supply chain and knowing fabric technology, I then realised that there was no organic sportswear. So organic being, is it eco-friendly? Is it ethical? Um, especially after the Rana Plaza in Bangladesh, where we, as an overall like global community, realise a lot of ethical manufacturing, you know, sustainability issues within um, fashion retail. I wanted to um, 
adapt that with the modest athleisure because I think as a healthy lifestyle brand, it must start at the core of the product. And using an eco-friendly fabric and organic fabrics um, obviously is more hygienic, it's sweat resistant, it's kind to the skin. So it kind of goes hand in hand with the active wear as well as modest athleisure. And I think there's two things I want to draw out there. And one is, and I imagine we have some aspiring fashion designers in the audience today, and indeed people whose businesses are already underway, is the importance of understanding the market. You know, lots of people have ideas and draw designs, but it's really about understanding that market because it's a harsh industry mm -hmm. with a really high failure rate. And we want to try and protect people from that. And then the other thing is the intersect between modest fashion available for women of all sorts, and we'll talk about your customer base shortly, mm -hmm. and sustainability, because there's both the environmental sustainability and, as you say, as the world realized after Rana Plaza, if they hadn't thought of it before, the social sustainability. Mm -hmm. When I started researching this area, I would often ask um, designers and brands whether sustainability was an issue for their consumers. And I've seen that consciousness grow over the last 15 years amongst consumers. And of course, Muslim women consumers are the same as any other consumers with a heightened awareness of that. But there's another intersect as well, which is I increasingly hear Muslim women saying to me, you know, I may choose to dress my body in the way that I think is appropriate according to my religious and cultural and, and ethnic um, identifications and values, but if the garments I'm wearing came from sweated labor or are hurting the physical environment, how is that part of my religious and spiritual and mm -hmm. political ethics? So could you say a little bit more about how that intersects in your work and what you hear back from customers about that? I think um, because I wanted, when I say the word modest, I don't just associate that. I don't think it can be umbrella just with like a Muslim woman. I think it modest, you know, you can go to the gym and you don't want to just wear like little crop tops or if you're pregnant you might ne not necessarily want to wear like the tightest like sports wear, also like in mixed gender classes. So I wanted to create like a modest athleisure that was accessible to everybody, especially even within the Muslim com community. We have different associations with how we would want to dress modestly, whether that be in like Malaysia or Southeast Asia in comparison to the Middle East or the Gulf areas. Um, and about adapting our individual individuality through modesty. Um, with, with regards to the sustainability aspect, um, because I myself am really into the gym and fitness and organic like eating, um, for me it was how we are harming our environment through uh, fabric sourcing, um, you know, a lot of chemicals and emissions are released into the air, plus the ethical side, like the labouring side. What I feel quite strongly about is, you know, using like refugees for labouring or children. Um. And is that challenging as a small company? Because many entrepreneurs want to know about the details of manufacture, but don't necessarily have a budget to go and visit factories all around the world and so on. Mm. Have you found some of those things particularly challenging in terms of the scale of the business? I actually think as a new startup company it's less challenging because I decide to start that way. Um, Where do you manufacture? I actually, well, um, the fabrics that I use, um, which is a tensile and model fabric, it's sourced from rejuvenating trees in Austria. And then I manufacture with a small uh, family that I know in Turkey. 
So obviously it's not as cost effective, but because we see the market moving towards sustainability, ethical labouring um, and eco-friendly fabric, and it's only growing tremendously now, um, it would actually be more cost effective to start now than to have to go and change this whole supply chain which I'm seeing a lot from the big brands like Louis Vuitton, Sandro, Maximara are all having to kind of backtrack just to implement mm. the sustainability aspect because now customers really demand full transparency. They want to know who's made it, where it's coming from, is it harming our environment? And I do believe that as a sportswear brand, if you're into implement and inspire personal health and hygiene and want Muslim women or modest women to work out then it must start at the core of the product and when you I do with my consumer I do see that the more European market is more into the sustainability and organic aspect but then when I do have the for example the Arabian customer who might not necessarily have thought about it but they feel the fabric and then they wear it they're like it's super soft, it's kind to my skin. I'm not having the same like odour that I would in, for example, a polyester or synthetic fabric. So it's almost like educating them as well. And um, So there's a level of consciousness raising exactly. for some consumers that yeah. haven't already thought of that. Exactly. Especially with the, um, the agricultural aspect of it. So if I say to them, you know, we're not harming your environment, you know, you're able to grow your crops without us harming for fashion then they really start to enjoy the link between. So that's really interesting to me that as a small company, you can build this in as integral mm -hmm. to your business plan. Yes. And therefore, the fact that it's slightly more expensive in some ways mm -hmm. is also part of the premium for yep. your customers who are seeking that out. And again, this has come from a connection to the family mm -hmm. that you know. So therefore, you're able to utilize your network yes. to allow you to have confidence yes. about your production line. And I always ask designers and brands who their customers are, because one of the things that's very clear in the niche modest fashion market is that it's inherently cross-faith. If what you need is a long line maxi skirt that isn't transparent chiffon and doesn't have a slit to the thigh, you may be Christian, <laughs> yeah, somebody's wanted that garment. You may be Jewish, Christian, Muslim, Sikh, you will buy it from a brand regardless of what their point of origin is. And the internet made this possible because instead of having to travel to Brooklyn or Utah or a destination of clustering of those communities, you can order it online. It's also meant that people are talking to each other online because as we know, as we see in this exhibition, social media and the blogosphere has been cross-faith as mm -hmm. well. So I also always hear that many of the brands get customers who don't identify in religious terms and who see themselves as secular because there are very many women who think, at last, an evening dress with sleeves that I can find. So can you tell us a little bit about what you know about your customer base in terms of age, where they're located, religious um, and cultural and ethnic background, and also whether you've seen changes? Mm -hmm. Um, when I was doing the business plan, actually, for Underwrapped, I based my customer profile on like um, what we call a hijabista. So it is this... Um, lady that would like to cover but is wearing maybe like a Zara outfit and how they choose to lay their clothes in a fashionable way maybe wearing like a nice little crossbody some sneakers so it's almost um it, it's quite global because streetwear now is a is a global um trend definitely 
and um, you, when I was basing it, it would be between the ages of 18 to 35. Um, someone who has not so much money, a little bit of disposable income, wants to dress modestly, but still express themselves in really modern consumer culture. Um, so I base it more, probably a lot of um, the young females will know, um, social media influencers like Dina Torquio or M Maria Drissi. Um, that's who I base the customer profile. But when I was doing the business plan, I didn't actually, um, for, the, for the complication reasons, include this sustainability aspect. So now that's come on board. I then um, attract a lot more consumers. Where, and I couldn't really put an age range on that consumer because that consumer is someone who probably would usually shop at like Sweaty Betty or Lululemon, but have actually taken a liking to my brand because of the organic aspect. Mm. So I see a lot of like my like yoga consumers or people really into the gym and fitness and more about living that healthier lifestyle also right, be attracted to my garments. But when I was doing the consumer profile, it was the younger mod modern generation of the modest female consumer. And one of the things that I would say there is that what we've done with this exhibition, because this is very clearly the case, is looked at, wanted to include Muslim women who cover their hair and who don't cover. And amongst those women who do cover their hair, as you'll see in the exhibition and as we see around us, there are many different ways of doing that. And also we're aware that women may cover at some times in some spaces or with some people or during some phases of their life. Women who may cover their hair throughout their lives are going to wear different clothes age 18 to age 48 to age 88. So with the athleisure, you started off with the fashion, you know, the hijabista, the fashionable uh, headscarfed woman. And have you found that in terms of the product range, you get requests from women who aren't covering their hair as well? Do they want the same or different? Or is that just irrelevant to what you hear? I think because like oversized trends now are definitely more fashionable. Um, I mean, even on the market, you know, um, in, within fashion shows, you see, like we, you mentioned before, like long sleeve dresses in mainstream fashion weeks, whether it be like Dolce & Gabbana, but then we also have the separate modest fashion weeks, which would probably see something quite of a similar garment anyway. Um, with my with my consumer, I've noticed, because I do a lot of exhibitions, so I've been uh, exhibiting in pop-up shops in London, in Dubai, in Egypt, and, you know, the vast majority of Egyptians may not cover more do more do in like US um sorry in the Gulf states and then obviously in London is very multicultural. Um because it's oversized people do see it as like either trend driven or and can be modest. So it's kind of merging the both together. And which countries do you sell in the most? Um well, I currently retail in Dubai and Egypt, and I have my own website in the UK, but I have seen orders from Singapore, from yeah. Malaysia, from Turkey. Um, but then obviously, because Dubai is such a hub for expats, people who have visited the exhibition, I've had people from everywhere, Muslim, non-Muslim, and I tend to find they like it because of the fabric. And, and obviously the shape and if they're more trend-driven. Yeah. And we know that whilst the internet has been incredibly important in sharing images, 
selling product can be more difficult. It's not like music that you can just download. If you have to ship a dress or, or, or ship a, a garment, mm -hmm. then you're paying shipping costs and import taxes and so on. So it's going to be very interesting to see how that develops over time. And as we've been discussing, the modest fashion niche market was often pioneered by women from within religious communities and often with an ethos of respect and support for others who were potential competitors, but as part of a mission to build the whole area and to support other women engaged in this. And for years, I was hearing from Muslim women that the mainstream fashion industry was ignoring them and ignoring their needs. And now, oh boy, suddenly it's waking up to them. And we see that brands which were at one point aversive to being publicly associated with Muslims now regard it as an asset. With the global Muslim spend on modest fashion estimated at 44 billion US dollars this year, and set to rise, you can see a strong business case for why brands want to reach out to those consumers. Now, you are part of our sportswear display downstairs. You're on a stand next to the British designer, Sarah Elenani, and Rani Hatta's work from Indonesia, amongst others. And you're next to a Nike, an ensemble with a Nike sports hijab in it. In the same way as Dolce & Gabbana have done an abaya for sale in the Gulf, this both raises the profile of the market and of those consumers and is a potential threat to market share to the often smaller companies who were already catering to that need. So in your sec sector, how do you see that working? Is it raising awareness or and perhaps both at the same time making a challenge to the market? It's both, as you've mentioned. Um, when I was um, looking at doing like a sports hijab, my reason behind that is because I have a lot of like covered friends. We'd go to the gym together. We'd want to do like triathlons together and they would be really hot with the heavy layering of clothes, buying like bits of sportswear from H&M and putting it with Nike. And then obviously it's like synthetic fabrics. Um, so it would be really like hot and uncomfortable and the hijab would be falling off. So I really noticed a gap in the market in around 2015 and 16 for that. And at the time of starting to do my designs, um, I was then said, Yasmin, you have a really good niche here. You know, it's a largely populated niche market. Just go with it. You can use like a polyester fabric. You can use, and I said, no, because I did predict that um, a big brand, whether it had been Nike or another sportswear brand, would catch on to the mm -hmm. demand and the growth of modest fashion, especially within the, the sportswear market and bring out something. And in 2017, obviously my prediction was correct and Nike brought out the sports hijab. And I don't necessarily see that as a threat as such. I noticed that um, it raised the profile of a sports hijab. So then the Google um, hierarchy, like search engines, people typing in sports hijab would go up. So obviously they become more aware of my brand. And obviously what differentiates me from Nike is that I'm using the organic fabric and I've not worn the Nike hijab, but the feedback is that obviously it's more comfortable. And I have people actually who don't cover wear the sports hijab, who, for example, participate in boxing or um, or like in athletics, um, cycling, and they have to wear the helmet. So, for example, with the organic fabric, because it is sweat resistant and more hygienic, the bad odors that you'd get from wearing a helmet 
especially if you remember like in physical education like in school I you'd have to remember doing yeah it. like so, like such bad odors and they would wear that because it would either keep the hair up tight when they're like running or when they're wearing um, the helmets or the cycling helmets obviously it would protect the hair from like bad you know bad odor sweat resistant it's more hygienic so i've kind of angled it at, to suit like the overall sportswear market that's a really interesting point that when a big story emerges, it actually gives a bounce mm -hmm. to the whole area. And of course, it also means consumers have choice. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they can have more than one of a particular item. Very few people, I mean, sportswear perhaps is an area where some people only wear a particular brand. Yeah. I don't know, I don't ever <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't <laughs> say that. Um, but also, it's very good for consumers to have choice and they might want a variety of different things. So that bounce is, is very interesting. And I think your point about when you do Google search or other search engines are available, <laughs> it's very, very interesting because there was a time if you did a search for modest fashion, you would find mainly, you know, ethnographic writings or perhaps my book, mm. you wouldn't be taken straight to the portals for high street brands. Whereas now you can because those, those aesthetics are having a moment. Although, as we were saying, the fact that something is on trend also means it will go off trend because that's what fashion does. So it's going to be interesting to see going forward whether the brands that are committed to this sector keep going with that. I mean, they will keep going, but what the impact will be. And that brings me to my next question, which is about the development of a modest fashion infrastructure. So something which started out being mainly community driven and commercial, there were modest fashion events. They were often run by students, you know, the Islam Society, the Jewish Society, the multi-faith group, as fundraisers. They were quite low-key. And then now we have an international calendar of modest fashion weeks in Jakarta, in Malaysia, in London, in New York, in Italy, often run commercially and competitively, mm -hmm. which means that you and your other colleagues in the sector can be just as busy, busy as everybody else with showing at these events and gaining profile and press from them. How do you decide where to show? Because I know that you've shown in a number of places. You've shown in London, you've shown in Dubai, you've won awards. Tell us a little bit about your experiences and how you decide. I think to test the market, especially um, being such a like, multicultural market in terms of like Muslim, I wanted to test it in London because obviously that's where I'm from. And of course, we're so multicultural there that it, it would give me an insight to the consumer demands. And um, I think London was one of the first to really launch a kind of like a modest fashion week. I know New York have followed. Um, I know they run one in Italy as well. And... Um, so I decided to launch it there and then I did start to see, you know, um, women of all different ethnicities um, really start to want to dress more modestly, not necessarily just like Muslim. Obviously, I showed at the Muslim Fashion uh, London Lifestyle Show. So that... And that was last year? That was uh, 2017, yeah. yes. Um, and I think with having like Muslim in the kind of headline, obviously only attracted the Muslim market in the UK. But then when you do the Pret a Cover uh, Buyers event in uh, Dubai, or you do the Modest Fashion Week in London. And tell us about your awards in Dubai. Uh, yeah, so, um, so in Dubai, I did a Fashion Week earlier in March. Uh, we won Best um, Emerging Brand. 
and um, got top five brands at Grazia and I think mentioned Harper's Bazaar Moji magazine. You had fabulous coverage from Yeah, that. I mean, the great thing about these exhibitions is that there's always um, a lot of like media, a lot of like press, and I have been recognised for both the modest aspect and the sustainability aspect. So I've then featured in magazines in like Norway, um, in Atlas magazine, and then Citizen K in Paris and International. So, um, and not only that, when people see you in these kind of publications, it gives the consumer confidence as well to want to like invest because I am up against like bigger brands like Nike and Reebok and Sweaty Betty, um, but it gives them confidence in the fact that you know your own supply chain, you're being recognised internationally. Um, so and you showed at London Modest Fashion Week yes, this year. Yes. Um, so that gave me a lot of like press. Um, I, these these events are there to give you a platform. They're not there, you know. The, it doesn't necessarily mean like you know you're going to become a billionaire overnight, you know. Because uh, to be honest with you, a lot of the money that you make back has to go into investment into your fabric or you know. But and just going to these events, just and going to the, the events, is yeah, expensive. Just going to Dubai, you know, costs a small fortune, you know. But then obviously it's quite nice to be rewarded at the end and to be recognised and it's been a journey but it's a journey that i'm very 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 extremely passionate about and i couldn't think about doing anything more and obviously i can relate to the western consumer i can relate to the muslim consumer um, whether that be more conservative or more um, like less conservative and i just want to be able to cater to that consumer and obviously be able to cater to a broader consumer in the sense of um, with the sustainability and organic athleisure and the modest athleisure because I see people like I said earlier pregnant women people who like are doing mixed gender classes people who are maybe of like a larger size starting out at the gym and don't feel comfortable to wear really tight clothes and then obviously the modest consumer as well and you are clearly a very confident and clear and wonderful speaker mm -hmm. and Yasmin got a phone call at 8am this morning saying, could you possibly help us out? And of course, she said yes, which was just so generous and so wonderful. And I knew that Yasmin can articulate her ideas so wonderfully, off, not always at such short notice, but <laughs> so wonderfully. How important is that in terms of representing the brand? You know, you are the ambassador mm -hmm. for the brand and not all designers are good at speaking, not all artists are good at speaking, not all writers are good at speaking. It's not their primary job. You are, have you, have you always been good at that? Have you learned to get your messaging out? Is actually your training in marketing um, also helpful there in knowing about how to get your message clear? Um, I used to be one of those that would like sit in class get told off for chatting, but would never but never want to get up and speak, you know, like really get really nervous. But I think when you find something that you're incredibly passionate about and you know your overall supply chain, when people ask you questions, you've almost got an answer for everything. And that's not to be like arrogant or anything. That is just because when you when you are able to answer all the questions you know that people ask you you know where your product comes from which fabric are you using who's your consumer what is your purpose why did the business start out it obviously gives you confidence because primarily i am the ambassador of my brand but i've researched the market quite heavily 
you know, I'm, I know my consumer, I can relate to my consumer. And when I put myself at these exhibitions and I speak to my consumers and give them my experience, um, you know, they ask me, do you come from a fashion background? Do you come from a technical background? Do you come from a business background? I've kind of like trained all of them because I kept it quite broad for myself so then I could go into the visual merchandising, the the buying, the logistics. And to be quite honest with you, when I did the postgraduate course at London College of Fashion, I only, you know, they asked me, why do you want to do this course? You're already a buyer. And I said, because I, to be a buyer, I hated mathematics. But to be a buyer, you need to know about your supply chain and your cost prices and the logistics and the delivery and the lead times. And I suppose touching on all those aspects made me, gave me the confidence to be able to start my own business. And I remember doing the business plan at the course and the course leader, Julie O'Sullivan, said, it's like you've been wanting to do this a very long time. And I was thinking, I could never do business on my own. I was so used to being working for a bigger company, having a whole team around me and having my manager delegate to me. But like I said, when you find a passion about something and you know you gain confidence knowing that you're actually catering to the consumer that you wanted to cater to in the first place and the feedback that I get is incredible. And you also give your message about a company which is about empowering personal care and activity yes. for women. And just to close, before we open for contributions and questions from the floor, of course, your clothing featured in some of the promotional work for this exhibition, modelled by Halima Aden, the uh, Muslim-American model who swept to fame when she showed. And she showed, as we were discussing, just as you were coming in, for Yeezy. Yeah. So another sportswear, street style, athleisure brand. And I wondered whether there was something there about the increase. You know, when she modeled, the same as when Maria Idrissi, the, the British Muslim model, um, featured in a video for H&M wearing a headscarf, that went viral within minutes. And Halima Aden went viral within minutes. So you're also emerging at a point when athleisure has become a top story, but also when social media is sending these images around the world very, very fast. So did you see an increase in profile? Do you see a general increase in profile through the social media conversation that's happening, which is also often image-led as well? Mm. I think, um, just, just to go back, um, how we have Modest Fashion Week and we have the Mainstream Fashion Weeks. Don't forget Halima showcased at New York Fashion Week on the mainstream stage for Yeezy wearing a hijab. So already the mainstream market was adapting to the diversity on the runways. And then obviously she's then um, been able to be a pioneer for the Modest Fashion Week. Um, my research is that oversized trends now aren't deemed as unfashionable or just catered to the Muslim women. But obviously we can see from like Vetimont's and Yeezy and likewise like Dolce & Gabbana that the modest fashion growing in terms of any culture and any aspect. Um, with Halima Aden, I first met her at um, London Lifestyle Show and she's so sweet and she really liked my um, garments and I could have only dreamed to have seen Halima wear mine. So the fact that she's worn mine for this exhibition and showcase, you know, it's brought a lot of attention as well to my brand. But I think now through multi-channeling, i.e. how we purchase through the iPhone, the iPad, laptops, literally on the go, like I need an outfit for tomorrow, you know, you can just do it on your phone. Um, retail globalisation. So 
how we see Zara now in Europe, we see them in the Middle East. Maybe I was really interested in, for example, an ensemble or a dress by Zara, how many units we would buy for a country like um, Dubai and how we would buy how many units for a country like the UK, but it's still ultimately the same dress. Uh, it's just how you prefer to wear it. And then obviously uh, globalisation, social media is tr tremendous in building a community. And I do find that Muslim women go to social media and there's a whole community now on social media for the hijabista. There there's is. a huge community on there that. There sure is. And now we have a chance for our community in this room. Um, if you'd like to make a question or a contribution, could you please show me your hand? And we have um, an Olympic talented runner, not wearing sportswear, um, but who is going to brave these treacherous stairs. Um, I see somebody over there. And who else? Can I see who else wants to ask? OK, let's start over there, if you wouldn't mind. Thank you very much. Good morning. Uh, it's really a pleasure to be here and to hear both of you speak. Um, it's marvelous. The whole exhibit is marvelous. I was born and raised Muslim. Um, so I actually have two comments. One is I would appreciate it if um, the people that you are using other than yourselves, because you both said it correctly, would help to correct American people from saying what, whatever, what do they say, Muslim or whatever it is they are. I'd like them to be corrected to say Muslim. It's okay, not so Muz. We're going to take not over Mose, the American it's language. It's Mus. And your okay. other point. <laughs> the other Duly question noted, is, I will use my influence. Okay. And the your speaker other point. who introduced you said Muz. <laughs> and I'm like, why didn't they tell her the correct way? Anyway, the, my, my other question is, how uh, uh, is your brand being marketed and accepted in the US? Thank you. How is it being marketed and accepted in the US? I think with exhibitions like this, it's really helped to obviously engage the US into uh, modest fashion. I would love to enter the market retail-wise. It's a little bit more tricky because I'm doing everything by myself at the moment. And obviously, I've started in the UK where it's a little bit, um, in terms of diversity, it's very similar to the US. Um, and obviously in Dubai, but I think there is a lot of brands in the US that caters to the Muslim market. You might find it limited in sportswear, um, but hopefully I will be expanding the business for you guys here in the US, finding some nice retail opportunities, so yeah. Watch this space. Watch this space. Uh, <laughs> just across the aisle there. Hello. Hello, how are you doing? Um, my question is, where do you find inspiration for your fashion? So as someone who's been in the field as a stylist for many years and actually work with the Muslim community as they embraced covering, um, particularly within the immigrant population, you saw um, indigenous African-Americans covering for long, you know, for, for generations. Yeah. And there was a transition um, as it related to um, assimilation with the immigrant population and really trying to decide whether or not it was safe and acceptable um, to move about America and UK while covering. So where do you find your inspiration for style and design? Because what we found and what I found in my styling is that the urban streetwear trend that is prevalent within the African-American and the hip hop and the street 
vibe pretty much has influenced fashion and modesty mm -hmm. and made it that much easier for people to begin to embrace it. Because like 15, 20 years ago, you know, my friends, their parents were in shock when they said, oh my God, you're going to separate the shamrock kumis? You know, it's, mm -hmm. so this trend, where do you find the combinations, the styles, the line? Where is that coming from? Is it organic? Is it based on Egyptian traditional and authentic styles? Is it a combination? Um, wh what is the muse for the actual look and the trend that you're um, pushing forward? Because a lot of what we do in America is we set our own trends, and it's not just simply layering, you know, Thank pieces. You. Okay. So yeah. where do you get your inspiration? So for me, as you said, I have been fortunate enough to like travel quite like broadly. So I have friends like yourself from like an African or a Middle Eastern or an Asian community. Um, and for me, coming from a buying background rather than a fashion design background, um, and I did styling as well, um, I then am almost um, accustomed to doing trend forecasting. That's where I find, I do things like Premier Vision, trade shows. So I look at the latest fabric technology, the latest zips, the latest prints. And I try to keep my brand quite timeless because I think with sportswear, I want people to invest into sportswear and know that it's not going to fall apart or the seams aren't going to rip. So I look more towards setting designs that are durable and timeless, but then as time goes on, because obviously I want my customer to come back and have confidence in finding new designs, I then look at the latest zip technologies, I then look at the latest, for example, waterproof technologies, and then I link that with what's I see it as trend-driven and customer feedback. So, for example, being in control of my own company and standing at these exhibitions, I receive a lot of customers that say, oh, Yasmin, I would love to have um, a sports hijab that would sit on top of the fitted sports hijab, for example, in this organic fabric. Um, so that is something that I will develop. You know, so for me, it's to do with consumer feedback, visiting the trade shows, street style and then obviously looking what's on the catwalks whether it be from Vetements or Yeezy and doing this street style and athleisure trend and adapting that to the customer without limiting the customer just to be the Muslim market. Does that I, answer the question? And I think if I can interject there that one of the things that you shared that's so so important as well is that for women who do who do cover their hair that then marks you out and of course that can increase risk depending on the prevailing political and social climate and so also finding ways in which particularly with sportswear in which it can be rendered as safe as possible for women who want to cover to participate by you know not looking weird by having clothing that functions mm -hmm. as sportswear or as athleisure i know for a number of designers it's also part of their societal mission as well which is to increase participation whether it's at school or as an adult or you know for, for an elder person i think we have time for one more can i see anybody else showing me a hand oh just behind Anybody else? Could I see if there's anybody else that wanted a question so that I can work around? Mine's pretty quick. Okay, good. Hi. I have a question about the headkini, which is so terrific. The burkini? It's a burkini, yeah, the yeah. burkini. Sorry, I didn't have the full garment. I was in Aqaba uh, 10 years ago before the burkini was a concept, and I remember the ladies struggling in their shadors in the water, they wanted to be in the water. And I thought, how is that selling? I, I would love to know. 
the bikini is selling really well. Shirley, Shireen's not here today, is she? Uh, the bikini, I think, has been selling very well. And it precisely started as something that was a design proposition to resolve an issue about, in that case for Zanetti, her nieces being able to participate in sportswear. And what's very interesting, and also we have an American designer showing her splash gear clothing, these designers get a lot of non-Muslim consumers as well, both women from other religious communities, but also women who want some protection, who want to be covered up. And what's very interesting is that there's now a variety of designs on the market. And I think that goes to Yasmin's point as well about if there's a bigger market and there's more choice, then actually that can be very healthy because it's mm -hmm. growing the market overall. So you can have skater style, you can have something that's more fitted, you can have something that looks more like modest wear or that doesn't. And of course, some women are wearing with or without the head covering. One of the interesting things from what I understand as well is, as with you, with your technical research, mm -hmm. It's not just about having clothes that cover you when you're in the water, but then just don't shrink to you when you get out. So there's a technological challenge there that these companies have been able to address so that it's about the whole experience of wearing. Sorry, just to say as well, I think through my research, with the burkini, it was they were quite imitated. So, for example, online, I was seeing a lot of burkinis and sportswear that were just imitating each other and actually not really price sensitive for like a mainstream consumer so my um take was to make sure that i was giving quality product at affordable prices catered to the muslim consumer and the feedback that i got was if i want to swim and i want to participate in sports I, do i either have to layer spend a fortune on layering clothes from like the high street market or then do I have to just buy one piece and keep buying the same piece because they were so repetitive? So it was almost like just being able to evolve the trend and ev evolve the sportswear and uh, swimwear and the ath like athleisure market by catering because the feedback that I got is if I had one quality product that was catered to my preferences, they would buy it. Absolutely. Thank you so much. We, we have been called on time. I know Laura's going to make a couple of closing remarks. And Yasmin will be around for a little while, so you can mob her afterwards. Mm -hmm. Are you doing the thanks? Yes. Oh, so please, everyone, join me for a round of applause for speakers. And in about five minutes, we'll have our instant meet starting upstairs on the first floor in Piazzoni Murals room with Langston Hughes. He's also doing a book signing. And as Rena mentioned, if you have any questions, please come up and chat with our speakers. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank that you, was fantastic.
Hey two, hey, hey two, hey, check, 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 two, two, ringy dingy. Yeah, right? <laughs> check two, check two. Wish I could hear what that's I'm thinking that's all right. Well, I hear a little bit of a, let's kill that. Let's go to, hey two. Hey. I know, right? Ridiculous. Ridiculous. And then we're on
Okay, copy that. We are waiting outside their own area. Okay, great. And if I wait for Danny to come back, he said he would handle it, but you know. Oh, no problem, yeah. Take your so time. everything is there and you know what to do? Okay, that did. Absolutely. Yeah, well, it came out really nice yesterday. So the, oh, so. I'm glad it did. So they, these, this is your personal one? No, no, this is the one for the museum. Okay. The other one that need, I need somebody to look at. Okay. Or you if you're available. Are you video recording uh, today, Martha? Uh, Joan Levy is video recording. Oh, okay. So she asked me to be a backup. She asked me to be a backup if she couldn't make it, but she well, said she, she was doing it. Okay. So, therefore, I'm just doing the audio, which okay. is fine because, you know, okay, good. it'll be useful. Yeah. Okay. Okay, and then I'll bring the one that's my personal one whenever the next time, okay? I didn't want to do it today because I thought it would be too busy. I, you, you, yeah, that's probably a good idea. Yeah. But so, some I other day when there's not We should have plenty of time. We have three different speakers, and we'll have it all set up for you. Okay. So you'll just take care of it. I don't have to worry. You don't have to worry. Okay, I'm Especially gonna grab with Dan, I just saw Danny going in there, so there's there's two of us, so it's definitely gonna happen. Well, then we've got two champs, so we're all set. Okay, <laughs> Thank that's you. good. Yeah, that's good. Okay. Thanks Thank so much. Thank you very much. No okay. problem. And then I'll come and pick it up afterwards. Great. And don't forget the PowerPoint, okay? And that thing is in there too. Oh, okay, great. We need to like, I think it's just a slideshow actually. Okay, so that's the PowerPoint. Okay, got you. The, it's dragged on. I'll, I'll, Whether or not it's keynote or whatever. We'll do that. Sometimes it comes in Microsoft, but whatever I need it. Okay, okay we'll do that. You.